Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Michael Bryant. Mike has the rare distinction of having earned a PhD in history and having graduated from law school and practiced in the law. While he's interested in many aspects of modern German history, his writing focuses on the question of how societies, Germany in particular, have wrestled with what to do with perpetrators of mass violence. His first book focused on the German trials of participants in the euthanasia program. His second, which is the subject of today's interview, looks at the trials of the guards and administrators of the Operation Reinhardt camps. Published by the University of Tennessee Press, Eyewitness to Genocide often reads more like true crime than like history, and I mean that as a sincere compliment. At its heart, it addresses a basic question. What does justice mean for people who participated in mass murder? And how did these trials try to achieve this? These are questions with specific relevance to Germany, but are also ones that apply more broadly across many societies that struggle with a violent past. It's a fascinating book, and I'm looking forward to talking to Mike about them. Before we do that, in the interest of full disclosure, I should mention that I've known Mike for a long time. He and I were both graduate students at Ohio State under Alan Byerson, and we've stayed friends ever since. So with that, Mike, thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So a lawyer and a PhD, the natural place to start with maybe is how did you end up having both of those degrees? It is an exotic combination, no doubt. Um, for me, it actually goes back to the 1980s when I uh, decided that I wanted to go to, uh, to law school and uh, pursue a pretty conventional path that would lead me into some sort of a corporate practice uh, and on into, uh, into the middle class. Uh, at the same time, however, like a lot of young people that were in search of themselves, I um, I decided I wanted to get a, a theology degree. Uh, I flirted for a time with maybe uh, becoming a, a pastor. My, my grandfather was was a minister, and I was very interested in religion and very interested in theology at the time. So um, I looked up programs that uh, would enable me to study the law and theology, and lo and behold, uh, Emory University in Atlanta was one of the few schools that uh, afforded this opportunity. Uh, so I began my legal studies in uh, 1985, the fall of 1985, and also studied theology at the same time. And um, during the course of my theological studies, I developed an interest in German theology in particular, you know, the work of Karl Barth and, um, and Rudolf Boltzmann and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and some others, and uh, decided to apply for a fellowship that would take me over to Germany to study um, German theology for a year at the University of Göttingen, applied for it, and it was, was accepted. And so I took a break from my legal studies for about a year and spent time in Germany. And it was during that time in Germany that uh, I encountered the work of, of Ernst Klee, uh, who was one of the really great figures in uh, the historiography of the Holocaust. I, I picked up a book by Klee primarily because his uh, his writing was so clear and I was still kind of learning my German, uh, trying to uh, uh, kind of, uh, solidify my understanding of the language and, and Clay's prose was so clear, I thought that uh, that'd be a, be a, he'd be a good person to study. So I, I picked up one of his books. It's, it just it turned out it was his classic work, Euthanasia in the NS, the National Socialist State. And um, 
and read the book from cover to cover. It was the first German book I had ever read. And it was a long slog, but again, I was able to understand a lot of what I was reading at the time. And this was just an, a kind of a coincidental um, entree into Holocaust studies. Uh, I think I might have read just two or three books on the topic of World War II and the Holocaust prior to that time. Uh, but it was Clay's work that really um, opened my eyes to to, uh, to the phenomenon of Nazi criminality in a way that I had never fully understood uh, mm-hmm. until that time. So that would have been in the late 1980s. And by the time I uh, finished at the University of Göttingen, I returned to the United States, finished my law degree and took the bar exam, passed it. But I wanted to go back to Germany. I, I had the, the bug. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so what do you do? You're a young person. You want to go back to Germany, uh, or back to Europe at least, uh, but you want to ply your trade as a as, a, as an attorney. And um, I, I found that the best way, and for me, about the only way I could do it was by joining the Air Force. Uh, <laughs> and they, I remember talking to the uh, to the recruiter, and they guaranteed they would send me to to Germany. And uh, looked at the contract that they presented, and sure enough, there there it was. The, the, Stuff that uh, guaranteed I would be uh, be sent to uh, to Germany. I signed the bottom line, the dotted line, and um, I became a, a JAG officer and was sent in Ger- to Germany. They were good to their, wor- their word and to their contract. And uh, for the next three years, I lived in Germany, uh, working as a um, as a JAG officer, doing primarily criminal work. And there's the aspect of the criminal law that has been you know so important to my work as as an academic. But as I was in Germany, I continued to, to read widely. I continued to read more about the Holocaust and about, um, about Nazi crimes, and of course, the Nuremberg War Crimes trials. And I really developed a real interest in the topic uh, to the point where I was giving serious consideration to eventually giving up the practice of law entirely and uh, going back to school and getting a, um, getting a PhD. Initially, I didn't even want to do that. I wanted to go directly into some kind of teaching but I found that the prospects were very limited, and um, and it became clear to me over time that I really had to have a doctorate in order to do the sort of teaching and research that I wanted to do. And my wife at the time, uh, we were seeing each other. Uh, she was uh, a graduate student in social work in the MSW program at Ohio State. And I wanted to go back and be with her uh, once I got out of the military. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went back. Uh, I tried to find the guy who was in charge of the German program, German history program at Ohio State. And it was Alan Byershen, whom you know quite well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met with Alan several times, and uh, we hit it off. I think our first uh, lunch engagement lasted three hours. Does that sound familiar <laughs> at all to you? <laughs> so it was short by Byershen standards. Yes, it was. And uh, that really cemented the, the relationship. So I decided once I left the military, take my GI Bill and, uh, and went back to school and then got a, a PhD at Ohio State teaching um, or in, in modern German history. Uh, teaching like all of us did, uh, world uh, world civilization, Western civ, things of that nature as a graduate student. And then eventually, once the once I got the doctorate, I um, moved into, uh, uh, into full-time university teaching. And I haven't looked back. So why this book? This book at least from my perspective, is an extension of, of my dissertation. And you said at the beginning of the, uh, the podcast that my first book looked at euthanasia crimes. That's, that's not a coincidence uh, you know, based on my exposure to uh, 
to the whole top, the sprawling topic of Nazi criminality uh, through Ernst Clay and his in his work, Euthanasia and the National Socialist State. Uh, I, I developed an interest in the euthanasia topic, and I think that my interest was um, um, was more than just historical. Uh, I, I had an ethical interest in it as well um, that was driven maybe by uh, interest in social justice and uh, the way in which society treats its, uh, its some of its most unfortunate members. So this topic was uh, was really interesting to me, and uh, so I decided to look at at the trial of Nazi uh, war criminals who were involved specifically in crimes against the mentally disabled, um, and that turned into my dissertation, and then eventually into my first book. I think many of us try to write our dissertation as far as we can take it into into a, an initial mm-hmm. book, and then we segue into other topics thereafter. Uh, so for me, uh, euthanasia formed the, the crux of the first book. But I, I wanted to come back and, and revisit the issue of Nazi criminality and, and the trials of Nazi war criminals by German courts. But in the second book, within the context of um, uh, of the final solution. So I, I thought that as a good complement uh, to uh, to the euthanasia crimes and the focus on euthanasia crimes would be uh, a second book, looking in greater detail, greater detail in Germany's West, in this case, West Germany's confrontation with uh, uh, Nazi criminality in the 50s and 60s and the way in which the Germans were able to uh, construct a a fairly robust uh, investigation and prosecution apparatus in the late 1950s into the 1960s uh, that continues into the present day. And as as you know, uh, these trials are still going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Demjanjuk, of course, John Demjanjuk, the Cleveland auto worker, was uh, convicted in, I think, 2011. And uh, his uh, his conviction, of course, has spurred a new interest in uh, investigating and indicting and prosecuting, uh, by at this point, very elderly uh, Nazi war criminals who were involved in, in service in the death camps and elsewhere and during the Third Reich. So this, uh, this program really, uh, in its current form, dates back uh, to the late 1950s. So I, I wanted to take on that. Um, that end of research, and uh, the result was my second book, I Witnessed the Genocide. I'd like to start by asking you to just kind of set up the broader context for this. What what kind of efforts are made in the 40s and 50s to bring participants of the Holocaust to justice, and how effective were they? Yeah, of course, most of your listeners uh, will no doubt be familiar with the Nuremberg war crimes trials mm-hmm. and everybody, uh, wherever I travel, whatever, wherever I present papers, um, whether it's at academic conferences or just at university settings, you know, everybody has heard of Nuremberg. Um, relatively few people, especially outside our, our area of study are familiar with, um, with the national trials that were conducted by the Germans of Nazi war criminals. And these trials are, are really, really interesting and, and produced, uh, a tremendous amount of material that are, is relevant not only to understanding human rights law and uh, and, and domestic German law, but for understanding the Holocaust and, and its progress. A lot of documentation was collected in, in connection with these trials, but they, they, they tend to languish in the shadow of um, of the much more prominent and much better known Nuremberg war crimes trials. Now, right after the war. Um, German courts were, were very limited in terms of the kinds of cases that they could try. Of course, the whole German legal system was uh, more or less dismantled, at least held held in the bands for a period of time until really the fall of 1945 when it was reconstituted. Uh, there were various efforts to purge 
uh, insofar as it was possible at the time to kind of purge or to uh, to cleanse the uh, the judiciary of its more notorious Nazi supporters. Um, and then the German court system was reopened. But it was reopened with certain limitations on their jurisdiction. One of the things that German courts could not preside over in their cases were criminal trials involving the crimes of Nazi perpetrators on non-Germans, which effectively meant that for the first five or six years of the post-war era, German courts were at least technically uh, forbidden to to prosecute much of the criminality associated with the Holocaust, because these, you know, by by very definition, by their very nature, uh, the German uh, crimes were committed on uh, non-German nationals, on Poles, on Russians, right, on on Balts, mm-hmm. um, and so for this reason, you you find relatively few true Holocaust cases between 1945 and 51. Um, most of the most of the cases, and I've written about this just in journal articles and, and other uh, other works of scholarship that I've done. Most of these cases related to um, a variety of offenses that had uh, maybe connections with the Holocaust, but were not you know Holocaust specific. And I'm thinking of uh, of cases involving um, the, the first true mass killing that was made an object of German prosecution, which was not the Holocaust, but was the euthanasia program. And you see euthanasia crimes uh, prosecuted already you know, in late 1945 and 1946. And along with uh, euthanasia crimes, the, the German courts uh, were able, of course, to, to adjudicate uh, crimes related to the uh, the Reichskristallnacht, the, the night of broken glass pogrom in November of 1938. Why was that? It was because these were crimes committed by Germans on other Germans. Uh, the, these crimes were uh, justiciable under the terms of a Control Council law uh, decreed in December of 1945, Allied Control Council Law Number 10, which said that. Germans could not adjudicate cases involving non-German victims and German perpetrators. But if the perpetrator and the victim were German, then that was fair game for their jurisdiction. So almost by default, the Germans fall back on the the November 1938 pogrom. They fall back on euthanasia. A lot of the cases that were adjudicated during this time focused on the the so-called infasa fabrecken. These are crimes that took place right at the end of the war, you know, as the as the uh, the noose was being tightened around the throat of Nazi Germany, allies were advancing from all directions, and we see a spate of uh, of homicides carried out in connection with that those final paroxysms of the Nazi state, as it tottered toward its final collapse. Uh, a bunch of these crimes are put on trial then uh, in the immediate post-war era, as well as crimes uh, involving the so-called grudge informers, and I, I don't know how how many of our listeners will be familiar with these crimes, but, but these involved, uh, they're really ext- extremely uh, depressing cases, really. They, they involve some of the worst aspects of just mundane um, um, mundane criminality, you know, t- turning your uh, neighbor in uh, to the Gestapo because they're listening to uh, foreign radio broadcasts and, and doing that because uh, you covet your neighbor's uh, apartment. They have a nicer apartment than you do. And you know that if they're turned in, they'll be arrested and sent off to a concentration camp or worse. And then you'd be in a position to receive their apartment. Hmm. Or maybe you uh, have an interest in uh, uh, in um, uh, seeking the favor of the wife of your next door neighbor. 
And there are actually are cases, you know, involving such motives, very, very base sorts of, you know, just reprehensible sorts of uh, very common human vices uh, involving self-seeking and self-dealing. So you, there, there's an entire spectrum of cases involving the so-called grudge informers, people to turn their neighbors in in order to, to seek some kind of advantage for themselves. So these cases then were put on trial, but really not until, until the 1950s do you see uh, efforts to put perpetrators of the Holocaust uh, specifically on trial for, for their crimes. Um, in terms of the quality of justice, uh, as I write in my, my book on euthanasia, you see in the early post-war period, say from 1945 to 1947, 1948, uh, pretty, pretty harsh punishments meted out, especially for, for murder. And of course, up until the time of the Grundgesetz, the basic, uh, you know, constitute basic law, the Constitution of of West Germany. Up until that time, capital punishment was uh, prescribed for any person convicted of uh, first-degree murder, and only in, in the presence of extenuating circumstances would the state uh, exempt the person from uh, capital punishment. Instead, give them a life term in jail. You know, that was only, uh, you know if there was an extenuating circumstance involved, you know, typically people were uh, you know, guillotined. That was the form of mm-hmm. capital punishment at the time, up until 1949. And so you see lots of uh, these Nazi perpetrators, uh, particularly in connection with the euthanasia program, um, sentenced to, to death, uh, convicted as perpetrators and sentenced to death and, and executed. Uh, and this continued for the uh, 1945, 1947, 1948. Then we begin to see a change, and I write about this in my first book. There's a, uh, a relenting in the severity of punishments uh, that seems to coincide with the advent of the Cold War. And I was quite convinced when uh, doing the research for my first book that there was an intimate causal linkage between those two events, you know, the outbreak of the Cold War, and this new desire on the part of, uh, of German society and, of course, of, of, of lawyers and of judges who are uh, caught up by these cultural currents. There was a new desire to try to relent in, in punishment. So if you could somehow purchase time for yourself and delay your prosecution from 1945 or 46 until the late 40s, you had a a much much better chance of either um, uh, not being convicted at all, maybe even not being indicted, or if you were put on trial, you at least could could avoid the worst consequences, which is being convicted of murder and sent to to the guillotine. Um, So the, the quality of justice changes quite dramatically after 1948. And then by the 1950s, we see a, a, just a precipitous decline in the numbers of cases that are investigated and the numbers of people who are indicted, as well as convicted for Nazi crimes. And that continues from the, about 1950, 1951 into the mid-1950s. And it gets to the point where it looks as though these cases are just going to be just dissipate entirely. And of course, the 1950s, you're well aware of this, Kelly, as many of our listeners will be aware of this too. The Germans by the 1950s are involved in the Wirtschaftsfunder. They're reconstructing their society. The economy is now beginning to take off. And there's a feeling that the past has been surmounted. Very superficial feeling, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. it's there. That, uh, you know, the Nuremberg and, and the burst of trials after 1945 had taken care of the perpetrators and that, you know, a new West Germany, freshly minted, uh, was coming into being in the 1950s. Uh, that was a belief that was exploded uh, in 1955 and 1956 
when uh, a new investigation is uh, set into motion involving a, a group of um, security policemen who operated on the German-Lithuanian border near, near Tilsit. Um, the leader of this police unit uh, was recognized by uh, one of his, uh, his erstwhile victims who actually had survived the war. Is a, a rabbi in Stuttgart who just uh, recognized this guy's picture fortuitously in the in the newspaper, and then reported him to the local police as being uh, a person deeply involved in shooting Jews along the German-Lithuanian border. Um, and this eventually turned into uh, a major court case that came to trial in 1957, and it's sometimes referred to as the Ulm, Ulm Einsatzgruppen case. And Ulm, of course, is the city where the trial took place in Baden-Württemberg, the state of Baden-Württemberg in Germany. And um, I mean, for the most part, in the literature, uh, historians regard this as regard this as being a major turning point in a uh, revival of interest in prosecuting Nazi criminality and kind of revealing to uh, to Germans from all walks of life that the perpetrators uh, were still living you know, in West Germany and uh, were living in, in some cases in quite comfortable circumstances. Uh, at least this is one of the dominant uh, schools of interpretation among historians who, who study this. There are some historians who take issue with it. Annette Weinke, for example, believes that uh, that there really wasn't a uh, such a pure uh, engagement with uh, or re-engagement with Nazi crimes, but instead this is an effort to try to fend off you know, criticisms by the East Germans that that uh, where the West Germany was harboring Nazi war criminals. And, uh, so there's some some split in opinion among the uh, the scholarship, but I think there is a you know, a near Census that this this trial taking place in 1957 really moved the West Germans toward a re-engagement with the crimes of the Nazis, and so thereafter we see the creation of um, of a new organization that had never existed before in the city of Ludwigsburg, uh, the Central Office for the Investigation of National Social Socialist Criminality, uh, comes into being in 1958 as a clearinghouse for. Um, for investigating Nazi crimes and then forwarding uh, the results of those investigations to prosecutors across West Germany who then were free to issue indictments based upon the central office's findings. So this is the way in which the Germans kind of come back to uh, to a renewed uh, engagement with Nazi crimes by the 1950s. And it represents a new kind of, uh, I think, a, a watershed in the country's history, and certainly a watershed in the history of prosecution of Nazi crimes that, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of our, of our time together, mm -hmm. continues to the present day, most recently with the conviction of John Demjanjuk, and now reopening a lot of old cold cases, which uh, are now warm again. So you're, you're, you look at a particular set of these trials, the Operation Reinhardt trials. Can, can in, a, in just a minute or two, can you give a little background of what Operation Reinhardt was and what camps we're talking about? Yeah, I certainly can. It's, um, again, I think for maybe some of your listeners, this will be quite familiar. Maybe for others, not, uh, not as familiar. Uh, when we think of the Holocaust, it's, it's helpful to think of that event as embracing independent programs. Uh, which targeted different groups of people and in different regions of Europe. Reinhardt came into being, insofar as we can tell, probably sometime in the fall of 1941. And it seems to have coincided with uh, what many scholars, I'm thinking of Christopher, Christopher Browning in particular, as well as the late Raul Hilberg, believe was a, um, a verbal order 
by Hitler to set in motion the final solution to the Jewish problem, which was the extermination of all Jews within reach of the German, of the Germans in occupied Europe. Um, Browning and Hilberg both believe that this order was probably given sometime in September. And I talk about this in the book. I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to support a September dating of this order. Um, and we see a lot of activity flowing out of uh, what is believed to, to be uh, the order issued primarily by, by Hitler to Himmler and then conveyed down through the, through the chain of command to, uh, to Heydrich and others, uh, Eichmann, to Müller and the Gestapo. We know that there were meetings held in September between uh, members of, of Section 2 of Hitler's personal chancellery. And this is the organization that, as we know, was in charge of the Nazi euthanasia program. There were meetings between uh, Odilo Globachnik, who was a former Gauleiter of Vienna, and members of Section 2 of the Chancellery. And it's believed that at this meeting, there was discussion of organizing a program that would be staffed by members of uh, the Nazi euthanasia program as superintended or supervised by Section 2 of the Chancellery, who would uh, be detached from their uh, assignments and reassigned to what was planned to be a series of camps in the Lublin district of Poland. It was not at the time called Operation Reinhardt. It was only given that name later on after, uh, it's, again, this is somewhat murky, but it's believed that after Reinhardt Heydrich's assassination, the program to exterminate the Jew, uh, Polish Jewry living in, uh, in the Lublin district and, and really for much of the, the, the general government, um, Heydrich's name was attached to this program, uh, perhaps as an honor to, to Heydrich. Uh, it's not really fully known whether, he, whether Reinhardt pertains to Reinhard Heydrich or not, but a lot of scholars believe that it was highly likely that, that he, uh, his name was attached to it after his assassination by, uh, by Czech partisans. Um, but in the fall of 1941, uh, we began to see steps to organize the program um, Eichmann wrote about this in his memoir from the 1950s and then later returned to it, of course, during his, his testimony uh, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, he makes a trip in the fall of 1941, as he says, at a time when the, the leaves were at their height in, in, in Poland. This probably would have been sometime in October, uh, fall of 1941. And Eichmann writes about encountering during his, uh, his tour uh, in the Lublin district, encountering uh, Christian Wirt, um, in a certain undisclosed location, uh, who was covered with dust and was involved in a construction project. And at that time, Wirt supposedly, according to Eichmann, showed him um, the beginnings of a facility, which historians now believe was the Belzic camp. Um, Belzic, in fact, becomes. Um, the first of the Operation Reinhardt camps. Two others follow thereafter, uh, Treblinka and, of course, Sobibor. And uh, Operation Reinhardt is, is identified with those primary camps. Now, some historians have, have, have referred to Majdanek as being perhaps a camp allied with Operation Reinhardt insofar as there were some inter, uh, interagency connections between uh, these various camps. There were you know, 
people who served in Sobibor or Treblinka or, or Belzic sometimes also were involved in, in Majdanek, and there were some jurisdictional interconnections as well. But I, I prefer to think of, of, of Reinhard Heydrich as comprising those three camps, uh, as well as maybe some labor camps, um, I think of Poniatawa in particular, mm-hmm. that seem to have been, been connected with, uh, with the project of, uh, of the mass murder of Polish Jewry. But really, Sobibor, Belzic, and Treblinka are are the focus of my book, and I think that they represent the kind of the black heart of uh, of Operation Reinhardt, which was frightfully effective in in killing um, between between 1.5 and 1.7 million million Jews during during their uh, during their time. Um, so this is Operation Reinhardt again. Whether in fact. Uh, it was named after Reinhard Heydrich or not is a matter of some some dispute among historians, but um, I, my own belief, belief is that it was, in fact, named after him. So reading your book, one of, one of the things that I really found enlightening was how difficult the process of identifying perpetrators and witnesses was. So can you talk a little bit about how uh, the people in charge of the investigation tried to identify uh, people to charge, people who were witnesses, people who might be able to identify or locate people who were charged. How does that all happen in the late 50s, early 60s? Yeah, yeah, that, that's really one of the, what I'm hoping to be one of the more unique contributions of, of the book to, to Holocaust studies and German history is trying to reconstruct how it is that, uh, that the investigators made their, made their choices, made their decisions about whom they would focus on and uh, whom they would overlook. I talk about this primarily in my first chapter of the book. Um, it, it actually goes back to, um, to the construction of, of this, this new clearinghouse, the, the central office in Ludwigsburg, Germany. It, it, the central office had a certain mandate, and this came about through uh, discussions between the attorney generals who met every so often in conference to talk about what kind of jurisdiction uh, the investigations would have. Who would they look at? Who would they uh, who would they charge or, or think about including within a charge, and who would they uh, exempt? And the decision was made pretty early on in 1958 that the focus would be primarily on people involved in the Einsatzgruppen shootings, um, commanders from Einsatzgruppen units would be uh, would be a focus, as well as the, you know, the lower rank and file who served within these Einsatzgruppen units, as well as uh, death camp personnel uh, serving primarily in Eastern Europe. There was a, uh, a determination early on that uh, that the, the central office would would confine its investigations to crimes committed in Eastern Europe, which you know, obviously excludes then uh, cr- crimes committed on German soil. It would it, it would exclude crimes committed uh, at, at Dachau or at Buchenwald or or Flossenburg or Mühlhausen or any one of a number of of German concentration camps. Now the focus would be primarily on crimes committed in the East. Now, now later on. Uh, the central office's jurisdiction would be expanded to include crimes that occurred elsewhere. Um, but early on, the decision was to, to restrict the crimes uh, considerably and, and focus exclusively on the crimes committed in Eastern Europe. Um, what is especially interesting, I think, and I've had several other scholars who've read the manuscript comment on this to me, is, is the relative lack of knowledge 
about Operation Reinhardt and the kinds of people involved in Operation Reinhardt uh, for many of these investigators working in the central office. And there was just a paucity of documentation early on available to them. Uh, and I talk about this in, again in, in chapter one of my book. There was really just a handful of, uh, of written sources. There, was, there were a couple of Polish um, sources that were drawn upon uh, to try to generate names. Uh, there was this book written by Gerald Reitlinger, a very early book, um, called, just called The Final Solution. It appeared in 1953. And Reitlinger, uh, who based his information, much like Asked Clay later will, uh, on, on the trials of Nazi war criminals. And Reitlinger looked in particular at an early trial of some Silverbor uh, uh, defendants, Eric Bauer being one who was the Gassmeister, the, the, the gassing technician at Silverbor. You know, a couple of other, like actually three other people uh, who were tried in 1951 um, by the West Germans. And uh, most of these individuals were convicted. Uh, I think one of them was acquitted. Johann Klier was, was acquitted. The others were, uh, were convicted. But of course, their, their trials generated documentation. And, uh, and Reitlinger used these trials really as, as one of the major, uh, major sources for his own work. That's an early, early uh, history in 1953, the final solution. And that became then one of the primary uh, documents that was used from uh, secondary source documents, but, but then his primary sources were traced out by some of the, uh, the investigators at the central office to try to identify the names of people who served at uh, the Operation Reinhardt camps. Um, of course, in the late 50s, uh, we also have uh, you know, a major event involving uh, Adolf Eichmann and the discovery that he was uh, he was living um, in uh, South America and uh, his uh, uh, his arrest and later his uh, deportation to um, or abduction and, and his uh, his uh, trans- transportation to uh, to Jerusalem to stand trial uh, opened additional avenues of documentation so there were lots of connections established between the West German investigators. And, and Israeli authorities um, working at Yad Vashem and also working within the Israeli police forces who were involved in generating material for the use uh, of uh, Israeli prosecutors like Gideon Hausner at, uh, at the Eichmann trial. And so these become then uh, you know, avenues of research by the central office investigators, especially Dietrich Zoig. He was the, he was the point man for uh, many of these cases, uh, targeting Sobibor and, uh, and Belzec and Treblinka. He was one of their major prosecutors. He was also a, assigned as a, an official observer by the West German govern, government at uh, the Eichmann trial in 1961. So these become some of the primary ways that, uh, uh, that the investigators forged their, uh, their connections with primary source documentation. And then, of course, once they... Um, they had a list of, uh, of potential defendants, or at least people who were suspected of involvement. They then had to determine where these people were. And uh, toward that end, then they, they began uh, canvassing uh, all of, of West Germany, uh, seeking to uh, establish connections even with the East Germans. This were uh, problematic, as you probably know from reading my book. There was a uh, so-called Holstein Doctrine, right, that uh, really paralyzed uh, connections between the West Germans and the East Germans and really with the Eastern Bloc as a whole. But nonetheless, you know, through various loopholes, there were some efforts made to establish connections with the Czechs and with the East Germans and even with the Poles, 
not until 1965, I believe, um, were, was there an effort, though, to go to Poland and to actually, uh, you know, access these, a lot of this documentation firsthand by, by, the, by the West German police, by investigators. So it took several years for them to really <clears throat> overcome some of the geopolitics and, uh, and lay their hands upon a lot of incriminating material that uh, only became available a little bit later. But this is a process that uh, that occurred very gradually, and you can see, hopefully in my book I try to lay it mm-hmm. in a very systematic manner, just lay the cards on the table, and I, I you know, step by step, how is it that, that the West Germans begin to assemble cases against uh, against these offenders, many of whom you know, had a, were able to reconstruct very conventional lives for themselves after the war. Some of them did it by adopting aliases, uh, adopting pseudonyms, getting uh, intriguing to have themselves uh, declared uh, deceased. The original, you know, uh, <clears throat> the original person declared deceased as of a certain date in 1945, and then they they adopt a different name, hmm. and uh, they're able to reconstruct lives for themselves uh, in West Germany or, or even in other parts of the world. Uh, even Franz Stangl was able to, uh, uh, as we know, lived in Syria for a while, and then eventually uh, immigrated to South America and lived lived there uh, until in the mid 1960s. And eventually, he was extradited. But a lot of these guys were living um, quiet uh, lives, uh, as, uh, as in some cases respected uh, citizens in West Germany and elsewhere. So now, the, by the 1950s, the West German authorities are beginning to try to track these people down. And um, their collaboration with the Israelis is critical. When you think of the numbers of, of witnesses in particular, uh, survivors of, um, of the Holocaust who were living in Israel, the Israelis were indispensable uh, to ob- obtaining witness statements from, uh, from survivors of the death camps. And there were survivors, it's hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, only one survivor of Belzic, Rudolf Rader, was living in Toronto, Toronto, Canada at the time. Um, but you have far more survivors of Treblinka and Sobibor, not because those were you know, more merciful places. They weren't. They were every bit as, as lethal as Belzic. But what you have with, lethal, with uh, Treblinka and Sobibor is are successful prisoner outbreaks. There actually are revolts by prisoners in which some prisoners manage to escape and even to survive until after the war. And again, in many cases, immigrate to other countries, including Israel. So Israel becomes a very important partner with the West Germans, and of course the West Germans were really important partners also for the Israelis, particularly in connection with the Eichmann prosecution. Uh, lots of reciprocal exchange of information and of witnesses shuttling back and forth between the Israelis and between the West Germans. And what I thought was interesting, you know, as a scholar kind of looking into this, um, I, I saw uh, just a real competent, professional, and committed. Uh, attitude on the part of the West Germans to constructing these cases. You, know, you might think that the West Germans uh, might have had an incentive to uh, to be a little half-hearted right, in the investigations mm-hmm. of their own mm-hmm. countrymen involved in these terrible crimes, but I just did not see evidence for that. What I saw was a real commitment to building credible, convincing cases against uh, deeply compromised individuals. I was struck when you, in in reading your book about that 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 this is a a really problematic kind of case to prosecute with witnesses that 
have been living elsewhere for by now 17, 16 years or, or more with memories that have been impacted by all of the discussions that have happened over the years about these events by uh, witnesses who, who, who were observers of the event in this kind of traumatic uh, environment, which may well uh, impact the way they remember events even uh, a day later. How did the judges and, and, and the prosecutors try and wrestle with these issues in these prosecutions? It's it's infinitely problematic, isn't it? I mean, as the historian, you and, and other listeners of the, of the podcast know how problematic, uh, from a historical standpoint, uh, eyewitness testimony can be. Of course, anybody with uh, even a passing conversance with um, with criminal law and criminal uh, prosecution know that uh, uh, eyewitness testimony can be very <laughs> deeply flawed, and this gets to issues uh, that. that you know, that surpass Holocaust studies. Mm-hmm. And we get into issues of psychology and um, human memory, human cognition. And it's pretty clear that uh, the human mind does not operate like a, a, a videotape machine. You know, it doesn't just transcribe uh, with perfect fidelity mm-hmm. what is going on. And, and instead, we have a residue of, uh, of factual memories, but we oftentimes fill in the gaps with our own imagination or our own assumptions about how things must have been. And we do this in some cases, uh, in many cases, unconsciously. And we do it in, in perfect good faith. I mean, talk to any, uh, any traffic cop who's, who's investigating an accident. You know? <laughs> They'll tell you. And uh, I've experienced this too when I was working as an attorney trying to reconstruct things that happened involving clients of mine. I mean, you'll have... You'll have four different witnesses to an event, and each witness, in perfect good faith, you know, speaking from from their point of view and in, in perfect uh, fidelity to to truthfulness, they'll give you four different versions of what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now let's transpose this to the Holocaust. You have witnesses now who are coming back into uh, a German courtroom, and some of their testimonies are, are transcribed or under depositions uh, and, and brought into the courtroom, but many of them appear as, as live witnesses in these trials. And uh, how, how many years is it after the fact? I mean, these camps were dismantled in 1943. The trials took place between 1963 and 1966, mm-hmm. so this is, uh, you know, in some cases, 20. 20 or more yeah. years after the events have taken place. Now, now. These are traumatic events, of course, uh, that really inscribe themselves in many cases uh, very forcefully in the, in the memories of, of these people. Um, and it, what's remarkable as you read through uh, the witness statements is uh, how much they got right. Hmm. Right? I mean, 22, 23 years after the fact, you still have, in many cases, an extraordinary degree of acuity and, and accuracy in the witness's ability to recall what happened. But of course, there were many instances in which witnesses, in perfect good faith, uh, provided flawed testimony. Now, if you're a judge, you're sitting there, and let's, let's imagine that you have a pre-existing urge to acquit a defendant, and you're listening to testimony, and the only thing that is that is connecting this defendant to the crime is the testimony of of the eyewitness in front of you. If you have a pre-existing urge to acquit, would you not have seized upon inconsistencies or flaws in 
in the texture and the substance of the eyewitness's testimony and then use that as a reason to acquit the defendant. And I make the assumption in the book, and maybe it's a problematic assumption, I don't know, but I, I, I think it's true to my own experience, that a person harboring such uh, prejudices would, in fact, seize upon these inconsistencies and use them as a way to acquit. And yet, as I read through the court records and the investigation records, I saw no evidence of this pre-existing urge. Because over and over again, especially in the Sobibor trial, and also in the Treblinka trial as well, it's particularly prominent in the Sobibor case. Lots of witnesses, and really good ones, coming forward, but they're still human beings operating with human memories. Oftentimes, good witnesses would uh, contradict themselves, or they would misidentify a certain person. Uh, kind of, they, they would confuse one person with another and project the crimes of one individual onto another individual, and they would do it in perfect good faith, believing that they were remembering correctly. Well, the judges are listening to this testimony, and... Um, Every so often, you know, they, they would acquit a defendant of one of the charges based upon flawed recollection. And in these cases, the prosecutors themselves would admit that there were some problems with the witnesses' testimony. And even the witnesses would come forward and say, you know, I, I think I might have screwed this up. You know, I, I, I believed that this person, you know, defendant X, whoever it is, uh, committed the crime. But now, you know, on further reflection, I could have mistaken this person for somebody else. So you even have the witnesses coming forward and admitting that in some cases, in some limited cases, they made mistakes. But what I found to be so extraordinary was that the court, in many cases, was willing to overlook inconsistencies in order to affirm the essential truthfulness and the essential accuracy hmm. of the witnesses' accounts. Um, and in this regard, Kelly, and you'll appreciate this as an historian, they behaved, they, they acted more as historians and less like lawyers in this regard. I mean, we all know how flawed human memory is, but that doesn't mean that the event is totally untrue. <laughs> it just means that you have to take into account when considering what happened, that people do not recall uh, the events with perfect fidelity to, to history. And you see the judges, particularly in the Sobibor trial, but also to a certain extent in the Treblinka trial, and I think bending over backwards in order to to accommodate the the shortcomings in witness testimony. Right. Um, and still, in many cases, issuing convictions, even though the testimony isn't perfect. Now, if you're trying a case today to a, to a jury, I've, I've done this, you know, it's been a few years, no longer practice law, but I... I you know, I did 35, 40 cases during during my time as a uh, as a prosecutor, then as a criminal defense lawyer. You're working on a case, and you have witnesses who, uh, you know, you know. To be honest with you, uh, I was doing a case as a defense counsel. I saw a, a prosecutor prosecution witness. I thought the person was telling the truth, and and in, in my heart, mm-hmm. and yet my obligation was to represent my client. My client, um, you know, had his neck in the noose, and. Mm. Um, my, my duty was to try to expose uh, inconsistencies in the witness's statement so as to be able to impeach the witness and to plant you know, the idea in the jury's mind that this witness uh, might not have told the full truth. 
Right? That's how you impeach a witness. You you, yeah. you you tease out inconsistencies, including inconsistencies inconsistencies that are relatively minor. You know, that really don't don't bear upon uh, what the court calls the gravamen of the case and the essential facts. But you might you know, point out that at an earlier uh, interrogation by the police, this person had had uh, had said uh, that that the uh, my defendant was wearing a um, um, a blue shirt. And that in subsequent uh, um, interrogations, they come forward with information that it was a red shirt or something to this effect. And of course, the human memory does not perfectly preserve the precise color of the shirt. Maybe it does, but maybe it doesn't. And um, as an attorney, you would try to highlight this in order to discredit Mm -hmm. the witness, right, to impeach the witness. But in these cases... The judges, in many instances, would overlook the infirmities, the natural infirmities of human memory to uphold the essential truthfulness of the witness's statements. I saw no urge to engage in any kind of uh, like a pre-existing desire to acquit the defendants or to ameliorate uh, their guilt. Quite to the contrary, what I saw was every effort to uphold the essential truthfulness of the witness's um, statements and the witness's testimony. And and so, given that, um, one of the things that's really interesting about your book is the way in which you outline the the way in which the outcomes of these trials are are, are significantly different for each of these camps. And in fact, in, in Belzec in particular, I believe uh, many of the people are actually acquitted. What what happens there? Mm. Well, that, that gets to the issue of the uh, kind of the, the title of my book. Eyewitness to genocide. I, I gave it yeah. that title for a very uh, distinct reason. I wanted to emphasize how crucial eyewitness testimony was in the trials of um, of Nazi war criminals, particularly in, in these cases. Mere presence. This is important. I think to keep in mind when we approach this topic. Uh, and it's just hard for a lot of people, I think, to understand today. Mere presence in the death camp as a guard was not enough by itself to convict someone. Right. You, under German law, you also had to show that that person committed a criminal act during their service as a, a death camp guard. Now, th- this law is changing. For, for anybody who's familiar with the, the Demjanja case knows, the Germans recently have, uh, have come up with an alternative theory of criminality in death camps. Mere presence now in the death camp can actually shift the burden of proof so that now it's the defendant who has to show that he did not do anything in the camp. Right. Can, can I break it just real quick? Because this is one of the I, I if somebody had told me before I read your book that I would have asked this question, I would have looked at them like they were an idiot. <laughs> but now having read it, um, it seems a relevant and important question to ask. What are these people charged with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, per, again, per, a lot of your audience uh, will, will no doubt know uh, that. Um, that many of these people could not be charged with genocide because genocide was not a uh, justiciable offense under German law uh, in the 1940s. It's only after the passage of the Grundgesetz of the Basic Law in 1949 is genocide articulated as a uh, as an offense under German law, and uh, there was a belief that um, that you could only prosecute these people based on things they did in violation of the German Penal Code. So all of these individuals were charged with uh, with murder under, under paragraph 211, or alternatively with aiding and abetting murder. Beihilfe zum Mord is the, is the German uh, phrase, uh, aiding and abetting murder, essentially complicity to murder. 
so they, they, fa- they faced their accusers uh, based upon accusations of violating German law. They were never charged under German law with committing genocide. That, that was considered retroactive, right? Because the Genocide Convention is not passed until 1948. And under German law, uh, genocide was not an offense until 1949. And the Germans uh, are very much within that European tradition of uh, shying away from uh, retroactive applications of law and charging uh, the Operation Reinhardt death camps with genocide would have been considered retroactive. And if I if I read your book right, the difference between being charged with murder and being um, an accomplice is actually a really significant distinction, right? That's big, really, really big for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the, the primary one, of course, is the range of punishment that can be meted out. Now, theoretically, I try to emphasize this actually in in the footnotes of my book, I talk about Mm -hmm. this. Theoretically, you can, or you could, up until the 1960s, you could send somebody to jail for life for complicity to murder. That was the law. But oftentimes there's a gap between practice and theory. And the practice was that if you were found uh, guilty as an accomplice rather than as a perpetrator to murder, you would be given maybe three, four, five years jail versus an automatic life sentence. So it was quite significant. And what, so what distinguished the people who, who are charged with murder and the charged people who are charged with being accomplices? As I read your book, there are a number of people who committed actions that we might reasonably call murder who aren't actually charged that way. Yeah, it's uh, so much of this is so counterintuitive, uh, especially for those of us who come out of an Anglo-American uh, tradition of law. And uh, I, I think this has led over time to accusations by various scholars that the Germans were, uh, that the German judges were doing everything in their power to to mitigate uh, the severity of uh, of punishment that could be meted out to these uh, to these Nazi offenders. Uh, but I don't necessarily see it from that perspective. Um, I mean, this kind of goes back to a fairly complex legal uh, history uh, that began in 1940 in the so-called bathtub case. I talk about this in the book. It's a, a really, really famous case in German legal history where a, a woman um, gives birth to an illegitimate child and she's covered with shame. Of course, at that time, this is considered a very shameful sort of act. She's, uh, she's not married. She has a child. And so she recruits her, her sister to drown the child in the bathtub on her behalf. And the sister kills the child and then is, is convicted of murder. Um, the case goes all the way up to the German Supreme Court. And in 1940, the German Supreme Court issues a, a verdict you know, reversing uh, the woman's conviction and uh, finding instead that she could not or should not be convicted of murder, but instead should have been convicted of aiding and abetting murder. Why? Why was she an accomplice rather than a perpetrator? Well, according to the court, she did not commit this act in order to advance her own interests. She did not identify with the act and support it for her own reasons. Instead, she was she was more or less a tool. She was a uh, an instrument of her of her sister. And her sister was the real murderer here, the real perpetrator. She and and and. And the actual killer, the one who really killed the child by drowning the child in the bathtub, was a uh, an accomplice to the murder. Now, 
this, this gives rise in German law to so-called subjective theory, which emphasizes uh, that before you, can be, uh, uh, before you can be convicted of being a perpetrator of murder, it has, the judge has to be satisfied that you have inwardly identified with the killing, that it, that it serves some specific interest that, that you have, uh, some subjective interest that you have. Mere killing, even if carried out with your own hands uh, on this theory, is not alone enough to convict somebody of being a murderer, which, of course, is counterintuitive for those of us who are familiar with, with American law. I mean, if, mm -hmm. if you carry out a killing, even if you are not doing it for your own benefit or for your own uh, purposes, you are still a murderer right? and probably a first-degree murderer. You commit a crime with your own hands. Uh, this was not so uh, under a subjective theory. Now, I want to emphasize that subjective theory was not initially followed by in a lot of Nazi war crimes cases after 1945. There were plenty of individuals who went to the guillotine in the 1940s uh, who, were, who were executed uh, who would have really fallen into that category of somebody who did not subjectively identify with a homicide, but was simply carrying out you know, the orders or carrying out programs that were given to them by their, by their superiors. But as they describe in the book, what happens over time is that subjective theory eventually usurps objective theory so that by the late 1950s and early 1960s, there's a, especially by 1961, there's a major court case that I talk about in the book that really cinches subjective theory as, and cements it as a foundation of, of, uh, of, uh, of criminal legal analysis in West Germany. So that if you're the prosecutor, in order to convict a death camp guard uh, of murder, you have to show that that person inwardly identified with the killing of Jews at one of these Operation Reinhardt death camps, or that they had somehow exceeded their orders. Right? They were given orders to kill, perhaps they killed, but if they did not, if they were not proven to have acted over and above the orders given to them, then at the most you can convict them of being an accomplice. And at the worst, if you don't have eyewitness testimony in order to connect them with specific criminal acts in the camp, then they could just raise the defense that they were acting under duress. And if you don't have somebody capable of contradicting that, that defense, then the defense is considered unrefuted and the individual then would be acquitted. And this happened actually in several cases, especially in the Belzig case, where you had only one surviving witness, Rudolf Rader, who returns to, uh, to, to testify in Munich against um, against uh, eight defendants uh, in the Belgic case. But of course, his perspective is very limited, just one guy, right? Hmm. And uh, oh, by the way, the, the other survivor, there were two survivors at Belzic. The other survivor survived the war, but then was lynched in a pogrom that had broke out in Poland after the war. Imagine, you, you survive Belzic, 99.999% uh, death rate. Wow. You know, he survives, but then is lynched when he returns to his hometown and, after the war. But so, so Rudolf Rader is the sole living survivor, and uh, he is not able on his own in order to to refute the defenses of of seven of the eight defendants. Ultimately, only one person is is uh, is convicted, and that's the the adjutant, kind of the liaison between um, the commandant of Belzic. And, and Globochnik back in Lublin, the Lublin headquarters, and he was the head of the Operation Reinhardt camp. So this is the adjutant who was convicted, 
And he's not even convicted as a perpetrator. He's convicted as an accomplice. Hmm. So I write in my book that Belzic was really a resounding failure. It, it, it marks the low point in, in the effectiveness of the West Germans. But it, it's not due, this failure of the Belzic case was not due to um, a pre-existing urge on the part of the judges to acquit Nazi defendants. I mean, you might think it did, you know, uh, if you just look at it superficially. How could seven of these eight uh, death camp guards just walk? No, it, it really came down to the structure of German law, German criminal law in particular at the time, and the availability of witnesses. And if you didn't have witnesses who were capable of connecting these death camp guards with specific atrocities and specific crimes within the camp, there was a better than not chance that that person would uh, be acquitted. Hmm. Mere presence in the death camp was not enough. Well, you do a great job following these these cases, and I want to encourage our listeners to go out and read the book or buy the book and and, and follow it because it's really there. There, it's well written stuff, and it's very interesting and. Uh, let me ask a, a couple of kind of implied questions or reactive questions. The first is, how does the German public respond to these trials and their verdicts? Yeah, it's it's, it's difficult to answer that question because the German public was really uh, all over the map in terms mm. of uh, uh, their attitudes towards, towards trials. There, there's a longer history here that some of uh, our listeners might be aware of. There was overwhelming support, insofar as we can tell, for the Nuremberg war crimes trials. And again, the polling data is a little um, a little uneven, but uh, from what we can gather based on some polling that was done right after the war, about 80% of Germans supported prosecuting Hermann Goering and prosecuting uh, the major war criminals at Nuremberg. But of course, you know, the trials, the, the major war criminals were uh, convicted, a small handful were acquitted, most of them were convicted and then punished. And a lot of Germans thought that that would be it, that, that the major criminals had been dealt with. Uh, of course, a lot of them had been killed or had committed suicide before the end of the war. And the rest of were, were now in jail and or had been hanged by the Allies. And so there was an assumption on the part of many, many Germans in the 1940s that after the, the, the Nuremberg war crimes trials, that there would be no further trials or there'd be relatively few of them. But as we know, that was not the case. The Americans themselves began another series of trials, the so-called successor trials, the 12 trials of um, of the next level down. They, they weren't uh, the major war criminals who were uh, decisive and making policy, but this is the next echelon down. They, these are still important people, but, but not at the summit of the Nazi, uh, the Nazi state. And there were 12 of these trials involving hundreds of defendants. And what, what you see in the polling data is that fewer and fewer Germans now are supporting a continued engagement with war crimes trials. And the numbers actually flip where 80% uh, supported the initial uh, Nuremberg war crimes trials. Several years later, it's 80% who opposed them. Mm. <laughs> and this continues then you know, through the late 1940s. And by the 1950s, there's a belief in West Germany, as I mentioned at the beginning of our, our podcast, that uh, you know, that this history was over. There's a, a major clemency program, the so-called McCloy clemency, which re releases uh, almost all of uh, the Nazi war criminals who had been convicted and imprisoned um, 
between 1945 and 1950. By 1952, 53, many of these people are now uh, alpha right? They're, they're released from jail. And uh, this continues until the late 1950s. And so we see a flooding back then of, of numerous individuals who, uh, who either had been convicted in some of these trials from the 1940s, or in some cases, individuals who maybe were never put on trial, but um, had, had gone through denazification proceedings. And now they begin to reenter the civil service. Uh, I read about this in the final chapter of my book where we see a, uh, a re-entry by the late 1940s and early 1950s, especially by 1951, of deeply compromised judges uh, who had managed to conceal their wartime activities and maybe got clean bills of health from, uh, from denazification boards. And now they re-enter. In some cases, they even have a, have a, uh, have a claim, a legal entitlement based on Article 131 of the Constitution. They're, they have a legal entitlement to reintegration in the civil servants, civil service. So we see a, a re-entry of uh, very deeply compromised people into the, into the judiciary and other branches of the government in the 1950s. Um, so that by the late 19, late 1950s, we see the, the, the Ulm trial by 1957 and a re-engagement with uh, the crimes of National Socialism. The East Germans, in the meantime, had geared up their blood judges campaign accusing uh, the West, uh, West Germany of harboring uh, judges who had been involved in, um, in, in just dealing out really grossly disproportionate of uh, 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 sentences to people who were convicted on racial or political grounds during the war. And so they began leveling their charges, and uh, the West Germans are kind of reeling from all of these these uh, these factors. Uh, the upshot of, of it, of course, is the creation of the central office in 1958. So th- there, were, there were mixed feelings uh, within the population. There, there, was, there was a desire uh, on the part of the older Germans, the, the Germans of World War II, you know, who had who had survived the war? There was a there was a feeling maybe that uh, we should let bygones be bygones. But keep in mind, Kelly, and this is a really interesting point. I think, at least I hope. But the early 1960s, the mid 1960s, exactly when these Operation Reinhardt trials are taking place, we're beginning to see a changing of the guard. Right, mm-hmm. we're on the verge of 1968. Right. And I try to suggest in, in the conclusion to my book that what we're beginning to, to, to see now is, is the, the arrival of a younger generation of Germans who were not compromised by the Nazi government. And there's, there's some generational changes which now, be, which now cause friction within West Germany. Uh, what, what was interesting for me as I began to delve into this research is I begin to see interconnections, believe it or not, with all, of all things with the Red Army faction, the Rote Armee Faktion, and Gudrun Insulin was very emphatic about this, uh, as were some of you know, the members of this Bader-Meinhof group by the late 1960s and early 1970s. They say that one of the motives that drove them was this belief that the whole German, West German government was shot through with unreconstructed Nazis. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that was uh, just a convenient uh, defense on the part of the Red Army faction or whether they really believed uh, that uh, the government was so corrupt and full of Nazis that uh, that extreme measures had to be taken right, to, to deal with it. But this becomes a, a real generational schism within West Germany by the 1960s and culminates then in the events of 1968. So I think there were some generational uh, differences in the perceptions of these trials. A very uneven uh, per- uh, reception and perception within West Germany. 
Well, we've taken a lot of your time, Mike, and I think thank you so much for that. For we 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 try and often end these podcasts with a couple standard questions, and so the first of those is, uh, I wonder if you would recommend a book or two for people who you uh, perhaps a book that was meaningful for you, uh, perhaps uh, a book that would shed further light on the topics that you've written about in the book. Certainly. Um, this really depends upon on how how deeply people want to get into the research and the, the kind of the nitty gritty details of um, of the trials and uh, Nazi criminality and post war efforts to wrestle with it. Uh, I think a book that's very accessible to, for both scholars and for educated lay people who are interested in the topic is one of my favorite all time books uh, on the subject, and this is Gita Sereni's Into That Darkness. Uh, it's a book that's been out now, but. 1974, I think, the, was the publication date. Uh, so it's been out for several decades now, and uh, and yet I still think it's a it's just a marvelous book. Uh, this is a woman who went into um, into prisons to talk with, um, with with Nazi war criminals like Franz Stangl, who was the, the commandant of Sobibor and was also a, a commandant at Treblinka. Eventually, uh, was able to escape uh, Germany after the war. Lived in Syria for a period of time. Eventually, uh, found refuge in, in Brazil. And she conducts a, a series of interviews with him, but not just with him. She also talks with some of the people that uh, that my book looks at, uh, like Gustav Munzbacher, for example. She actually interviews him after his release from jail and has some really uh, fascinating kind of personal sorts of observations about uh, about Munzbacher, who uh, at the time was living with his family right after his release from jail. So this is a, a, a wonderful, wonderfully insightful book. Uh, what I like about Sereni is she tells a really good story, for one thing. She writes very, very gracefully. And there's a moral earnestness and ardor to her work that I, in particular, find find very appealing and that I think other people might find uh, meaningful, too. So that's one book I would recommend. Um, there's another book, too, uh, which has been out a very, very long time. Again, this is a book that, that many uh, uh, non-experts in the field, I think, would uh, would still uh, get a lot out of. And even for, for experts, it's a book that repays uh, rereading. It's a book that I think was the earliest book that I ever read on the subject of Nazi crimes. I read it as a teenager when I was in, in high school. And I think it did kind of plant uh, an early interest in this topic for me in my mind uh, when I was probably 15 years old. This is Simon Wiesenthal's uh, book called The Murderers Among Us, which talks about his uh, his efforts to track down Nazi war criminals after the war and uh, so that they could be put on trial and the justice could be served. Um, for those who are interested in um, primary source documents, I think the best or one of the best uh, English language sources uh, was written by by Ernst Clay, and I think he co-authored this with a couple other people, Billy Dressen, I think it was another of his co-authors. But it's called the Good Old Day, Good Old Days. Uh, it was translated from the German Die Schöne Zeiten. Uh, the Good Old Days is a collection of um, of primary source documents about Nazi crimes uh, that have been translated from German into English, along with introductions by the authors. Uh, this is a wonderful book to teach from, and uh, I think you mentioned to me that, that you've, you've used the book in connection mm-hmm. with some of the courses you've taught, and I have too. It's, it's a really good teaching tool, but it's a very interesting book too, and you get a lot out of it. And then finally, um, for those who read German, I recommend the old classic that uh, provided my um, my entree into this topic, which is uh, Ernst Clay's Eutanasie im Innesstadt. 
which was his original um, monograph on the topic of Nazi euthanasia. I talk quite a lot about, about uh, the euthanasia program, of course, in confronting the good death, but I talk about it too in, in Eyewitness to Genocide. It was, a, uh, I think, a crucial uh, precondition to uh, to the final solution and to the expanded Holocaust in 1941. You know, Clay takes this very, very seriously as being a, a prelude to the Holocaust. And I recommend uh, that book, along with his um, Dokumenta zu Euthanasie, Documents to Euthanasia. And, and unfortunately, insofar as I know, neither one of these books has been translated, but, uh, but they're excellent um, uh, sources on euthanasia and also in primary source documents related to it. I, I found striking in reading the book is the number of time, time after time after time, as you're reading the little capsule biographies you give of these people, you see some version of this person was a, a nurse at Hadamar or at one of the euthanasia centers and then was after this program was wound down in Germany, was transferred to the Eastern Front and ended up working in the camps. Um, yep. And it's remarkable how often that happens. Nearly, nearly every defendant, with just a small hmm. handful of exceptions, there were some just hardcore SS types who were assigned there, but nearly every defendant in these trials came out of T4 and were, of course, employed, but they continued to be T4 employees, albeit given a, a different uh, uh, duty assignment. Uh, Not familiar. T4 is... Um one of the labels for the euthanasia or the organization that, that does carries out the euthanasia program. That's right. But let me go back. So, so the last question then is, and from talking to you, I know it could be a long list, but in, in brief, what are you working on now? At the present time, I'm uh, actually writing a textbook of all things. Um, it's a, um, kind of a general world history of war crimes. How's that for a, a modest topic? Uh, what I discovered <laughs> as I began to write the book is that uh, you, I could easily write eight volumes. Uh, this is such a multifaceted topic. Um, but uh, I, I thought it might be helpful for, for students, both undergraduates and also for graduate students, to have a um, just a primer, a fairly compact maybe 110, 115,000 word primer on, um, on the world history of war crimes. So I, I'm, I'm writing that currently. It's about 85% done. I'm going to try to wrap it up if I can. I'm under contract uh, to deliver a manuscript by October. I might have to delay that. We'll have to see. <laughs> you know how it is. <laughs> Trying to know lawyers take contracts seriously. They, they do. They do. My, my, fortunately, I, I'm, I'm working with Bloomsbury Academic Press in London, and they've been wonderful to work with. So we might be able to delay if need be. But but they 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 really said that they they want the manuscript insofar as it's even humanly possible to deliver by by October. Uh, so that, that's that's my current project um, in terms of of writing, and I'm also working on a geographical mapping project. Project at Boston College, which is really a, a multinational project involving numerous scholars from across the world, including geographers and political scientists, as well as historians. And uh, we're going to try to, to map the many um, geographical locations of, of the Allied War Crimes Program after World War II. So this is, uh, this is something also that's uh, engaging my attention today. Well, they both sound like fascinating projects, and I look forward to seeing them. And I hope when... Uh when they're out in whatever form they take, that you'll be willing to come back on the show and talk about them. It'd be a pleasure. But I wanted to say thank you so much for your time and um, wish you the best of summers. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Bryant, 
author of the book Eyewitness to Genocide, the Operation Reinhardt Death Camp Trials, 1955-1966. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time for an interview with Samuel Totten. I'll talk with Sam about the situation in the Nuba Mountains in the Sudan, using both his book Genocide by Attrition and more recent articles and experiences as the basis for our interview. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.